Hello, and welcome to Enter the Rabbit Hole. Hi, I'm Alicia. I'm Will, and this is the series where we do a deep dive on something that we think is a little bit interesting, and you'll find it a little bit interesting too. Yeah, hopefully it's something maybe you haven't heard of, or maybe you want to know a little bit more about. So today we're starting with the letter A. 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 I don't know why I'm doing that. Yeah, so uh, we're going to choose a topic that begins with the letter A that we think is kind of interesting, and then we're going to do a deep dive into that. So today we are talking about A is for... Afrofuturism. Yeah. Now, I don't know about you, but I had never... I think I'd heard this term before, but I had no idea what it was. And actually, when I heard the term for the first time, the first thing that jumped into my head was the movie Black Panther. Sure. And I think uh, most people will know Afrofuturism from Black Panther. It was immensely popular, and it it shows uh, a version of a, a fictional country in Africa that is wealthy, it's full of incredible technology, and... We talk about the costume design because it is gorgeous. Obviously, it won yeah. the Academy Award for Best Costume Design. Yeah. Um, what's really impressed is about, uh, impressive about the costume design in Black Panther is that all of their designs are taken from real-world tribes and real-world ethnic groups that live in Africa. Yeah, and it's just, I mean, even without that cultural history, which only adds to it. It is just beautiful to look at and a really vibrant and lived-in world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not to mention all the futuristic vehicles, buildings, all the technology that they use. And this is a movie that a lot of pundits did not think was going to do well. They didn't think Black Panther as a standalone title was going to succeed. And I think the elephant in the room is the fact that Not only are you dealing with a black superhero, which I guess we had only seen a couple of times before on the big screen, Um, Blade jumps uh, jumps to mind immediately, Uh, Shaquille O'Neal in the 1990 movie uh, Steel. Uh, Can you think of any others off the top of your head? Not off the top of my head. Um, um, Not only is it uh, a black superhero, played by Chad, but the late, great Chadwick Boseman, but also... Um, a mostly black cast, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, in terms of a superhero movie, had definitely never been done before and not on such a commercial level. Yeah, uh, I've got a quote here from uh, a article by Alex Wigan on itsastampede.com. And he said, at the time, Black Panther was one of only five Marvel Studio movies to sit at the $1 billion club. Following the Avengers, Avengers Age of Ultron, Iron Man 3, Captain America Civil War. Uh, so Black Panther eventually pulled in over $1.3 billion worldwide, which is just, you know, even a few years on, that is an incredible figure. And it was the ninth highest grossing uh, box office of all time mm-hmm. at the time that it came out. And the third highest grossing in the USA and Canada. Mm-hmm. It was... Uh, had seven Academy Award nominations and three wins for costume design, production design, and original score, which is just incredible. It's a, it's an amazing movie, and it deserves all the accolades it got. But yeah. it is only the tip of the iceberg when it comes to Afrofuturism. 
Absolutely, yeah. So it's definitely something that I think has relaunched it into the zeitgeist. Or if you like, I think it's something that's relaunched it into the mainstream, let's say, the predominantly uh, non-black mainstream, right? So it's something that, uh, full disclosure, neither Alicia nor I are, are black. So this is something that, you know, this movie kind of put it on our radar and the radar of many other people that we know. And I think in addition to that, we can't talk about the resurgence of Afrofuturism without talking about the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement last year. So obviously Black Lives Matter started trending in 2012 and 2013 um, after uh, the acquittal of Zimmerman for his murder of Trayvon Martin. Mm -hmm. um, we, we saw some protests, uh, especially in 2014, but the movement really gained uh, more national uh, Recognition, recognition, I guess, yeah. Um, in 2020. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, after, of course, the death of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor uh, within, I think, a few days or, or weeks of one another. Um, and of course, you know, I think it'd be fair to say with so many people feeling disenfranchised and otherwise out of work or in lockdown because of the covid situation this is something that was forced rightly so into the public spotlight and so now black people black bodies black rights is something that is back on the table it's back uh, in discussion for again people like ourselves um so yeah which leads us back into today's topic afrofuturism so what what exactly is afrofuturism so it would be a mistake to, to call Afrofuturism black sci-fi. Yeah, let's start with what, what it's not. Sure, it's not uh, throwing a, a black character into a science fiction novel or movie and um, claiming that it's Afrofuturism. Yeah. It's not um, having black characters in space. That's, mm -hmm. that's not Afrofuturism. Yeah, which isn't to take away or, or denigrate the role of pioneers in the sci-fi genre. Uh, the one that leaps immediately to mind is uh, Nichelle Nichols, who played Lieutenant Nahura in the original Star Trek TV series. Uh, a lot of people point to her and they say this is the first time that they saw a black woman on screen who wasn't playing a maid, who wasn't playing a second-class citizen. She's playing an intelligent, empowered woman in the future. And so they would point to this and say, oh, this is Afrofuturism. But that's not quite right. Could you explain why? So Afrofuturism, as we, we all know, like Star Trek was created by Gene Roddenberry, right? mm -hmm. who is, is not a black creator. Mm -hmm. um, what we're looking for is uh, black creators to create things for a black audience mm -hmm. and for it to really be rooted in the cultural experience of being black. Mm -hmm. So to be rooted in the idea that you've had your history taken away from you, that you have been displaced, um, that there are so many obstacles you are overcoming and you're looking towards the future and wondering uh, what you can create mm -hmm. in terms of your past. Yeah, and those are all themes that we're going to discuss 
in a little bit more depth later in the episode. So, uh, and again, that's not to take away from the role of Nichelle Nichols in that uh, particular TV series. Uh, I've got a little anecdote here. So apparently she uh, considered coming away from the role after only uh, playing that character for one year. And famously, uh, she was told uh, one day on, on set that she had a fan who wanted to meet her. She just assumed that it was some Trekkie. And it turned out that it was actually Martin Luther King Jr., and when he found out that she was thinking about stepping away from the role, he implored her. He said, you you have to keep doing this. You have to stay on screen. Uh, this is so important for young people to see an empowered black woman on TV. Um, so she she kept at it and she appeared in the rest of the TV series. And she uh, even, I think it was in their second season, she had to, what many people think of as being the first televised interracial kiss uh, with William Shatner, yeah, playing Captain Kirk, um, and then appeared in the subsequent movies. People like Whoopi Goldberg have even pointed towards that particular actor and that particular character and say that they inspired her. Whoopi Goldberg, of course, played uh, one of the central characters in Star Trek in The Next Generation, alongside people like LeVar Burton, who played Geordie LaForge. So uh, again, this isn't to say that she didn't play like an incredibly important role. Uh, we can also point towards people like Billy D. Williams, uh, who played, oh, the, I'm forgetting the name of the character now, in uh, Star Wars, uh, Lando Calrissian, yes. yeah, the role that was then taken up by Donald Glover. So these are all really important roles, um, mm-hmm. but the reason they are not uh, Afrofuturism is because you look into that world and those are the only black people you you see portrayed in that world. Star Wars, for example, is a huge multi-galaxy mm-hmm. um, world and yet we only see one black person. Yeah. Why Why is there only one black person in an entire mm-hmm. We're in a galaxy universe. far, far away uh, where, where there's one black guy. And it's something that has obviously been addressed in the series since then. Obviously, we now have John Boyega, uh, who played Finn in the most recent Star Wars movies. He has had his own things to say about Disney and Lucasfilm and his portrayal in that role. And the fact that uh, they, they kind of did a little bait and switch with Finn in The Force Awakens. Of course, a lot of people thought that he was lined up to be the next central character. He was going to be the next Jedi. Uh, and then they obviously pivoted to, uh, I want to say... Daisy. Uh, uh, I can't remember her surname now. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Um, but So they've obviously changed the, the, the central character. Um, we also don't have to just look at media as sources of Afrofuturism. Afrofuturism is rooted in real life and really... Anyone who is talking about the Black experience and looking towards a Black future that's propagated by Black people with some level of optimism is essentially an Afrofuturist. So we can actually look a lot further back than these examples in the real world, can't we? So let's first take a look at Frederick Douglass, Mm -hmm. born in 1818 as a slave. Mm -hmm. Um, He escaped slavery and is obviously a famous abolitionist. He is an incredible speaker and writer. He wrote many autobiographies and um, is credited with pushing forward 
um, the abolition movement. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also a staunch Republican, which I found, uh, which I found uh, surprising until I remembered that um, Republicans and Democrats uh, in the USA, uh, there, there was a big switcheroo there, wasn't there? Yeah. So yeah. He's really a Democrat in our terms. I guess. Yeah. But he has a, he has a great quote. I mean, he has a, a multitude of amazing quotes. Oh, but, yeah. Um, just one of them, which I thought was quite relevant, is where he says, uh, where justice is denied, where poverty is enforced, where ignorance prevails, and where any one class is made to feel that society is an organized conspiracy to oppress, rob, and degrade them, neither persons nor property will be safe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, another Afrofuturist that we can point to from roughly the same time period, a fellow abolitionist, uh, Harriet Tubman. Yeah, 1822 to 1913, mm-hmm. obviously, um, an incredible member of the Underground Railroad mm-hmm. uh, who did 13 missions and, and basically uh, rescued around 70 enslaved persons. Mm-hmm. And uh, she was also a woman suffrage activist. She was an armed scout and spy for the Union Army. She mm-hmm. was just an incredible person. Yeah, and uh, I I didn't know this about her. She founded a care home for old people and then subsequently passed away in that care home in 1913. Yeah, uh, which I thought was quite interesting. So I guess what we're pointing to here with just these two examples, uh, we've got two people who, um, I guess, uh, earlier in American history are trying to champion the rights of black people and they're trying to envision a better life uh, for black people moving forward. So if you want some more examples of what exactly Afrofuturism is, uh, the term itself was actually coined as late as 1994 uh, by an author named Mark Derry. So what do we know about Mark Derry? So, Mark Derry is uh, an author, mainly academic writing, um, and he really studies uh, cyber culture and the effects of the digital age. Um, But in terms of Afrofuturism, he wrote an essay called Black to the Future, Mm -hmm. um, where he coined the term Afrofuturism. And in that essay, he interviews some of the most famous Afrofuturist writers such as Samuel R. Delaney, um, Trisha Rose, and Greg Tate as well. And I think in that, he's talking about their thoughts on Afrofuturism and the representation of Black people uh, in the in the sci-fi genre, I guess, especially. Uh, they do talk a little bit about popular media outside of literature, uh, but they're focusing more on written media in that. So his big question in this essay is sci-fi is, is already about like marginalized people. Um, it's often about big picture ideas that maybe uh, writing in a different uh, genre you can't really um, hit as well, such mm-hmm. as feminism or, you know, uh, the environment. Um, and he's wondering why aren't there more black sci-fi writers for mm-hmm. such like a marginalized community? But he also poses the question that can a group who's had their history erased look towards the future? Mm-hmm. How do you do that when you don't have a past? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, exactly. Um, so that's where the term originally comes from, and he does touch on some of the things that we're going to cover a little bit later in this episode. But first, we are going to take a break. We'll rejoin you shortly. back. So earlier we were talking about where the term Afrofuturism comes from and some real life Afrofuturists. Now we're going to do a deep dive into Afrofuturism in popular media. Uh, so let's start with Afrofuturism in literature. Uh, in Mark Derry's 1994 essay, Black to the Future, he does make mention of uh, essentially like the big four uh, early African-American science fiction writers. So Samuel Delaney, Charles Saunders, Steve Barnes, and Octavia E. Butler are just some of the names that he mentions in that particular essay. Uh, let's start with Octavia E. Butler. So we've both done a little bit of reading on her in the past week. Uh, do you want to go first? Yeah, so she uh, was obviously a black uh, science fiction writer mm -hmm. in the 60s and 70s and 80s. Mm -hmm. um, one of her, I think her first novel was called Kindred, published in 1979. Right. And it's about a, a writer, a black writer named Dana, who time travels between 1976 LA and pre-Civil War Maryland, uh, mm. like a plantation. Um, she can't control this time travel. She just basically gets pulled back in time and has to try and survive basically as a slave right. on this plantation. Mm -hmm. um, while doing so, she realizes that uh, one of her ancestors was the plantation owner who rapes one of his slaves. Okay. Um, and she's constantly traveling back and, back and forth in time um, and seeing the progression of this plantation and the slaves that she knows. And her, her white husband is also drawn back in time with her a couple times. Right, yeah, yeah. Um, but presumably has a different experience yeah. from what she's gone through. So uh, within the novel, he uh, he has to claim to be her owner because mm. she needs some uh, protection. Right. Um, and then he gets left behind in the past at one point. Um, yeah. She tra time travels back to the future. Not to oversimplify things, it sounds a little bit like that sci-fi trope uh, I'm I'm saying sci-fi. I'm sure you see it in other genres as well, where in order to get past the villains, you have to pretend that one of you is in custody of the other one. Like when uh, they're pretending that Chewbacca is is you know being uh, guarded by Han Solo and and Luke Skywalker. We're back in Star Wars again, folks. Um, yeah, I started reading the first book of the. Xenogenesis trilogy, Dawn, which is, I mean, I, I consider myself a sci-fi fan. I think it's fair to say that some sci-fi books are more high sci-fi. They're, they're, the concepts are just stranger, they're bigger, and and this is definitely on, on the other end of that scale. So the book kicks off with a woman... Uh, awakening is how she describes it, almost as though she's coming out of a coma and she discovers that she's on an alien spacecraft and Earth has essentially been destroyed, I think, 200 years before 
in some kind of nuclear holocaust. And their spaceship that they're on is controlled by a race of alien beings who have observed Earth. They tend not to get involved with other alien civilizations if they're in the middle of a conflict or in the middle of a war. But they've decided to do so because their species are what they refer to as gene traders. So they will... How can I explain this? The the entire point of their species is to... Almost like the Borg from Star Trek. They're trying to make themselves better all the time by assimilating other species and crossbreeding with other species and taking... Uh, so, for example, in their species, they have three genders, male, female, and then a third gender who synthesize genes from other creatures and then produce something better. So, for example, the main character, she has a history of cancer in her family, and then she finds out that they've taken the cancer and they've, they've turned it, uh, they've made it benign and they've turned it into something useful. And so I guess the whole deal here is that uh, the main character can go back to Earth, but she's going back to Earth to essentially be used to breed a new species of part-human, part-alien creature. Uh, and, and she doesn't really have much choice in this. She can either do that or, or stay on the spaceship. So I think, for me, you can draw pretty clear illusions there between the experience of the main character in Dawn and the experience of Black people when they were first taken from Africa and then uh, put in places like America. They have a continuing existence, but that continuing existence is at the whim of somebody else who's been put into a more powerful position than they have. And their future moving forward is kind of taken away from them. It's no longer theirs. Um, I don't know if you've got any thoughts on that, that particular subject. Yeah, so basically being used for almost like the color of your skin, right? The, mm -hmm. the genes that you have um, are kind of a stand-in for using your body as, as slavery, yeah. right? Um, having your autonomy taken away from you, mm -hmm. um, your agency, and really being uh, thrust into a role that you have, um, again, no agency in. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I should point out as well, uh, all of what I've told you uh, is made apparent in the first 50 or so pages in the book. There's really, there's not too many spoilers there. And I've, I've got to say, like, it's some of the better sci-fi that I've read. Uh, it's really compelling and, and it really makes you want to uh, read it all the way through. I might go ahead and read the rest of the trilogy. Uh, another book that I think we both touched on. So I, I uh, read Binti by... Uh, help me out here and apologies because we are doing our best not to butcher anyone's names in this episode. Uh, Nnedi Okorafor. Yeah, Nnedi Okorafor has been to, uh, again, quite a prolific science fiction and, and fantasy writer. And so in Binti, the main character is a member of the Himba tribe from Namibia. And this takes place far in the future. And she's a very talented mathematician and her, her uh, role is described as harmonizer. So she's essentially offered a position at the galaxy's most uh, advanced university. And in order to go there, her family essentially forbid her from doing that, but she wants to make something of herself. And so she boards a living ship. It's 
uh, I want to say it's a genetically engineered shrimp that has been turned into a vessel that they're going to use to traverse the galaxy. And then very early in the book, the vessel is boarded by a race of jellyfish creatures that kill the rest of the crew, but they keep uh, Binti, the lead character, alive. Um, Binti, so one of the unique things about her is that in this universe, the most powerful, and I, it's never directly stated whether they're human or not, but the, the most powerful class are called the Kaush. And the Kaush look down on Binti and they look down on her people because she is ethnically Himba and her people, although they're very technologically advanced, they keep to their traditions. So one of their traditions, for example, is to cover themselves in, uh, again, I don't want to butcher this word, I want to say uh, Ozija. Ozigi. It's um, a mixture of red clay and oils from different flowers, different plants that they use to cover their skin and cover their hair, their braids, in order to, because they live in a, a highly, a very dry environment, in lieu of using water to uh, clean themselves all the time and also for protection from the sun, they cover themselves in this substance. It's really, it's a really important part of their culture to the extent that when Binti uh, escapes from her family to go to this university, among her few possessions that she takes with her is a jar of uh, this particular substance. And the jellyfish creatures keep her alive. It's alluded to that this substance has special healing properties. Um, I don't know if you want to speak to this at all because I know that you've read a little bit of Binti. I I have read a little bit of Binti, not as much, and it is a, a trilogy. Yeah. Um, but uh, I've read another one of Annette Iacorafor's books, and I actually mm. read this one, um, I'd say almost half a year ago, Akata Witch, which is uh, about a 12-year-old albino um, Nigerian character mm. who is who was born in America and then moves back to Nigeria. And in Nigeria, she finds out that she has magical powers and is one of a community called the Leopard People. Okay. And the Leopard People are part of tribes uh, all over Nigeria and they all have magical powers. But she is a free agent because she doesn't belong to one of these uh, different groups. Mm. Um, and she has to basically move back and forth between spheres of her life, the sphere of her, her parents, her school, and then also like her, her magical teaching school. Mm -hmm. um, and I find it fascinating because not only is she uh, albino mm -hmm. and was born in America, so she is not seen as fully black or fully Nigerian. Right. Like she is a, an avid soccer player, but she can't play in the sun. Um, and she is uh, endowed with these magical powers, but she is not fully accepted into this leopard community because she's not a part of one of the tribes. Yeah. She's a, a free agent. Um, so it, it really drives home this idea of the other mm -hmm. and, and being an other in your own skin and in your own community. Yeah, it, it's definitely a theme that is explored in Binti as well is the 
idea of wanting to retain so the the lead character there needs to get away from her family in order to live her truth and to be the best version of herself that she can be and yet uh she also wants to retain that tradition she wants to retain who she is from where she originally comes from even though uh and and again this is set in far future but she really experiences so many strange looks and so much indirect bigotry from the people around her because although again she's this fantastic mathematician and this incredible engineer you know she she looks like a tribal person and so they kind of look down on her for for her strangeness and her otherness um so yeah i guess there is this sense of finding your identity and 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 trying to parse out what that means for you exactly and I think these are two really good examples, not only of Afrofuturism, but also just uh, young adult fiction, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's um, not just speaking to the Black experience, but it's speaking to a universal experience Yeah. of how we find ourselves. And, and especially coming from a place like America, mm-hmm. where we're most, unless you're Native American, you're not from America. Yeah. And you're, a, a lot of people are trying to find their history and reconcile that with where they are in the world and, sure. and what they're doing and, and who they are. Yeah. And obviously no culture more so than black people who have been taken from their home and right. put into a, a, a different culture. Right, exactly. And and there's, I think um, it, it's fair to say that amongst different groups of black people, there's often this question that comes up time and time again of being black enough. Are you black enough? uh essential what whatever that means sure are you um mixed race yeah and, and do you act white do you uh do, are you an, a part enough of our community to be called black yeah um, and and what does what does that even mean you know yeah what does it mean to be black enough obviously i have no idea but uh part of my history is, is mexican yeah and uh, if you look at me, I look very white, but mm-hmm. I was raised by a Mexican grandmother. Yeah. And in, in Mexican communities, I will never be Mexican enough because I didn't grow up speaking Spanish. And I learned Spanish in Spain, so even my accent is the wrong accent. Precisely, yeah. And for me, uh, for those who don't know, uh, I'm Scottish and I grew up in a working class background. And so it's... Part of what it means to be Scottish in the UK is often what what you're not. So sometimes it can go down the relatively uh, sectarian route of, well, I'm not English. And, what you know, so what does that mean? How much do you know of your own history? That still exists to this day. And also, I want to say sports is a big part of the working class uh, Scottish experience. But as a kid, you know, uh, following football or following rugby, it just wasn't it wasn't something that really interested me. It was something that I dabbled in. And unfortunately, it was part of that, I guess, those growing pains that every kid goes through where they're trying to fit in. And so you wear a mask for a little while. You try and be something else for a little while to see if it fits you. And so I would uh, just look at the, you know, the name of the, the uh, you know, Rangers current lineup or Celtics current lineup and then try and spout those names to other people and they could immediately see through it and so it just it wasn't right for me so for me I guess for you that question was were you Mexican enough for me was I Scottish enough um and 
yeah, it takes a while to kind of find yourself and, and realize that you, you are enough, regardless of what you are, you're enough. Yeah, and I think that's what's important about Afrofuturism is that it doesn't just like, and it, it shouldn't just be media for Black people. It speaks to a common human experience. Mm-hmm. You know, I think everybody at some point feels like an other in their life or they feel like a, a loss of their history or who they are. And, mm-hmm. and reading these books not only opens your eyes to a different culture and um, just like incredible storytelling, for example, in in Akata, which there is so much Nigerian uh, mythology that mm-hmm. I had no idea about. Um, and, and reading that was just a- incredible mm-hmm. because I feel like, sure, I know about, you know, Norse mythology or Greek mythology, but I've never been exposed to that. And it just kind of feels like it's opening up a whole new genre for me. I think it, I don't want to be too reductive here either. It does feel like we're living through a moment where, I mean, as a kid, I used to get so excited for going to the cinema. And for me, that that love has kind of waned over the years because, yes, I do love the MCU movies. And, okay, Black Panther is a fantastic example. Captain Marvel is a fantastic example uh, of taking, you know, otherwise marginalized people and putting them in a, a prominent role on the screen. But ultimately, you know, we're spending our money every few months to go and watch another superhero movie and essentially we're kind of seeing the same stories told over and over again and and this is uh you know it's really exciting to know that there is media out there that tells really different stories and that it can tell those stories to whomever you know uh so yeah i think i don't know akata witch might be one that i go and check out at some point um of course We're not just talking about Afrofuturism in literature. Uh, You can also look at things like graphic novels. And one of the examples that we came across was an author called Tim Fielder. So Tim Fielder has done a number of different graphic novels, um, but his most prominent one is Matty's Rocket. Uh, So Matty's Rocket, for those who don't know, uh, it's published on his wonderfully titled Diesel Funk label which is a relatively new, uh, I guess, comic distributor. And the the name is so suitable because this is, it's a story of a black woman called Matty who is living in the Jim Crow era, but she is a pilot and I guess an inventor as well. And she uses her uh, abilities and she uses her technology to try and so I think she fights aliens and at one point she fights the clan as well and it's just such a it's just such a weird story and such an interesting story that wasn't already being told in a medium that I just think it's a fantastic medium to to show that so I think Tim Fielder is a, a perfect example of a black creator because he saw this um, gap in the market for what he wanted to do and the stories that he wanted to tell, mm-hmm. but no one was willing to, to take that chance yeah. on him. And so he decided, well, I'm not just going to sit around and wait, I'm going to create something for myself. So that's where Maddie's Rocket was born of, was this desire to be his own creator, be his own manager, and, and tell the stories that he wanted to tell. Yeah, I think uh, he does a fantastic TED talk about that very thing, the idea of how you have to do it for yourself and you have to keep pushing the ball forward 
And again, he opens it up to the audience and he's like, you know, where are the LGBTQ heroes out there? Where are the Hispanic heroes out there? Where are the X, Y, or Z? You know, so really throwing it back to the audience to take this and make something for themselves. Yeah, you you create the heroes that you need to see. For example, when I was younger, all I wanted were were fantasy stories with female leads. Mm-hmm. And there weren't that many when I was growing up. And it wasn't until I was maybe like a in my late teens that I started finally seeing there was a huge boom of like female dystopian writers. Yes. Um, maybe a little too <laughs> too similar to each other. Yeah. But at least there was uh, a range of books to look for where I could see myself as the hero of a story. Yeah. Instead of you know, Conan the Barbarian, or or even um, any of any of the popular science fiction or fantasy books at the time, which I loved, but couldn't find myself in those stories. Mm-hmm. And so it's so important for you to create something where you feel like you're the hero, or people like you feel like they're the hero. Absolutely, yeah. Not always just straight white males between the ages of twenty and forty. You know. And we can also look towards art for some other examples of Afrofuturism. So I know this is something that you did a little bit of research on. I did a little bit. Um, I'm going to butcher his name because it's French. <laughs> um, well, it's, sorry, it's, it's Haitian. Um, Jean, Jean-Michel Besquois. Okay. Um, he is kind of like a graffiti artist. And a lot of his art is influenced with like... Um, black characters mixed with like robots um and it's it's very striking it's colorful um yeah it's it's fantastic stuff it's uh just bright like vivid yellows vivid blues yeah really eye grabbing really attention grabbing stuff beyond just like artwork we also have um music afrofuturism uh probably gained First prominence through Sun Ra. Mm-hmm. So can you... I think before we pivot onto the music, we should take a little break. So uh, join us in a second, and we're going to tell you about the exciting origins of Afrofuturism in music. back so let's talk about some of the musical influences uh some afrofuturism in music yeah so earlier we were talking about literature and there's just a wealth of stuff out there uh for afrofuturism in books arguably music might be the the second biggest media out there in terms of this this particular movement this genre yeah, so I think a lot of it begins with Sun Ra, who mm. really started in the 1950s. And Sun Ra is a really interesting character because he is a, a jazz musician. Yeah. But he draws very heavily on uh, Egyptian mythology and mysticism. 
So even his, his name, which is a shortened version of his full name, but takes the Ra from the sun god yeah. um, in Egypt. Yeah. And a lot of his music, which we've listened to a little bit, has, has influences of like jazz, but also um, mystical kind of, of music and like the... the Almost way... like folk music? Yeah. And, yeah. and the way that he and, and his band dresses are in big robes and with headdresses at times. So this is like a big part of their uh, their band is their persona, their image. So almost like when you think of Prince as an artist, you're kind of thinking of Prince as a character, almost like the characters that Lady Gaga becomes on stage, almost like, I mean, you, you could draw examples from numerous different genres like Kiss, you would never see Gene Simmons as Gene Simmons actually appears in real life. You're always thinking of the giant boots and the makeup, etc. So Sun Ra and his band, they're not regular looking musicians. There's this kind of pageantry that goes alongside it. Yeah, they're even called the Orchestra, spelled A-R-K. Yes. Estra. And then his persona is of an alien from Saturn on a mission to, to preach peace. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he he kind of like denies who he was before Sun Ra. Right. And he like fully embraces this character of, of I'm probably going to butcher the name, but Le or Lee Son, Sonier Ra. Uh-huh. I'm not going to correct you because uh, I, I just can't, I can't correct you. I'm going to tell you right now, so the writers behind Stargate, and uh, the writers of Ancient Aliens, they owe Sun Ra a lot of money, okay? Oh, for sure. I mean, now that you've mentioned that and we, we look at Stargate, like, especially, like, the first movie. Yeah. Oh, you can really see those influences mm-hmm. of, like, Afrofuturism and Sun Ra. Yeah. Like, his costuming. No, it's it's great. It's fantastic. The kind of thing where, I mean, personally, I'm not big into going to uh, live events too loud. I'm too much, too much of an old man. But if if I had to go and watch a live concert, I would love to go and watch these guys play. And so, of course, following on from Sun Ra, you can see direct influences in the likes of George Clinton and Parliament. So George Clinton, his, uh, I think he was quoted as saying that he wanted to show black people somewhere else. And if black people could be anywhere else, then you could show black people in outer space. And so uh, he had. If you look at those albums, if you look at the album covers as well, bear in mind that all of this predates uh, MTV, it all predates music videos. So a lot of their image is being projected not only through their costumes, but you know, you buy uh, vinyl and the image that's on the front is kind of the story that is accompanying the music underneath. And so that is George Clinton's whole thing. That's Parliament's whole thing is that you're looking at these black guys and you're listening to this really funky synthy music. Incidentally, been listening to a lot of George Clinton this week, uh, an artist affiliated with him, and it's it's great. One Nation Under a Groove is absolutely fantastic. But you're listening to this stuff, and uh, and and then you're seeing these guys in these crazy outfits, and yeah, it's really it's really out there. And I was never exposed directly to this. Like the closest that I got to George Clinton was maybe like the first time I watched the first season of The Mighty Boosh. And they make like a lot of uh, references to him and people like P-Funk, etc. 
and they do like a homage to him. The Mighty Boosh being such a such a weird show for people who haven't seen it. So they're capturing some of that, some of that weirdness, some of that uh, otherness. Yeah, some of that psychedelic imagery, and and putting it into their own media. Um, so yeah, and then the the ball is projected forward; it keeps going. So, so we have Jimi Hendrix, who mm-hmm. was an avid fan of um, sci-fi, and, yeah. and he loved sci-fi growing up. Um, him and his book, his brother would often read like sci-fi novels, and you can see it in his costumes, in um, a lot of his music, and just like his psychedelic kind of experience. Yeah. So he's really trying to push the boundaries of of music and and make it obviously like the Jimi Hendrix experience. Mm-hmm. And then if you want to talk about black people in sci-fi in terms of musical artists, then you have to talk about Michael Jackson. So Michael Jackson, however you you might feel about his private life, um, there's definitely, I mean, you you can't really dispute the, his effect on the zeitgeist. His impact on society at all levels. Yeah, of course. But the thing that leaps immediately to mind is his uh, 1993, 1994 uh, music video for Scream, which at the time was the most expensive music video that had ever been produced. And it, if you watch it nowadays, you know, it's heavily dated. Like the CGI that's used in it is uh, you know, super super like soft edged and kind of gooey looking yeah i mean it's michael jackson and janet jackson yes yes sorry um yeah it's a black and white music video set Mm -hmm. in a spaceship and they're they're mostly dancing around this futuristic set and they have like a a bit of a an androgynous alien-esque look to them. Yeah, like uh, Michael Jackson, I guess his look has always been a little bit more feminine. Um, Janet Jackson has adopted kind of more a more masculine look. At one point in the video, she's seen they kind of kind of sort of show her peeing standing up at a toilet. Uh, they're, they're, the whole point of the song, I guess, is like that they want people to stop looking at them and stop making, you know, stop spreading gossip about them, whatever, but they're also projecting this image that's very, uh, it's kind of in your face and it's definitely going to get you talking. And yeah, there's, you know, they're doing everything, like they're meditating on the spaceship, they're dancing up the walls of the spaceship, uh, they're playing some kind of weird, um, uh, it's like Pong, they're, they're playing Pong, but it's like 3D Pong. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, at one point they've got those little, uh, do you remember those toys? You were like, uh, they were like little balls with little nodules on them and you would switch them on and they kind of like jump around by themselves. They've got like 20 of those running around the floor, which again, at the time people must have, you know, must have been mind blowing. But yeah, we're talking about like a music video event tantamount to when Michael Jackson's Thriller came out. You know, that was an event that was like people waiting up after midnight uh, to watch on Channel 4 in the UK. So again, this is like, big concept, big production, music videos. And then that is carried forward. So Afrofuturism and music videos, especially in the 90s, very much becomes a thing, doesn't it? Yeah, so we have Missy Elliott's uh-huh. um, cheerleading myriad of Afrofuturist music videos. Yeah, it, it kind of becomes her bread and butter with one of her earlier singles, uh, Super Duper Fly, The Rain. 
where she collabs with Timbaland and the music video is directed by Hype Williams, who, if you look at his back catalogue, he, he does these massive budget, massive concept videos. So the Super Duper Fly, uh, everything is shot on a fisheye lens, which again, you know, technology doesn't always age super well. Nowadays, we see the fisheye lens being used in everything. Uh, but at the time, it gave everything kind of like a weird, uh, out of proportioned look. Yeah, kind of showing Missy Elliott as like out of proportion, but also larger than life. Yeah. Which is helped by this. Um, at one point, she's wearing uh, a costume, which I guess you said was leather, kind of like a, a giant plastic inflated bag. I, I, yeah, I think most people refer to it as the black trash bag costume but it yeah. but it looks a lot more glamorous than it sounds i mean it's missy elliott so of course she looks glamorous and it, i think what is cool about that just to kind of come away from afrofuturism itself like uh, missy elliott as an artist has always kind of like uh owned her body type mm-hmm. she's a bigger woman and she doesn't unlike a lot of other female artists especially solo female artists she doesn't make an effort to hide that she kind of plays up to that yeah you can see echoes of that uh in lizzo but i think missy elliott was probably one of the first female artists who i ever watched and was like oh you know she's not afraid to be who she is yeah you know she she's not you know stick thin and as like a kid who was a little bit bigger i i found that like uh welcoming mm-hmm mm-hmm um, and then you see that alienness, this otherness, you see it through pretty much all of her music videos. Uh, you see it in Lose Control, you see it in Pass That Dutch, and it kind of becomes her, almost like her signature. If you're watching a Missy Elliott video, it, it, it's going to be weird, it's going to be out there, it's, it's going to get talking. Mm. Yeah. So let's move forward in time, and we have Janelle... Monet. Yeah, Janelle Monet, who... Um, I think I've heard her music before, but I've never really watched her videos. Yeah. Um, and she has a, a, a concept album that starts with Metropolis, which mm-hmm. is rooted in the the movie Metropolis. Yeah, Fritz Lang, uh, Fritz Lang's uh, 19, I want to say 1920. <laughs> Something wrong. Could be wrong. Um, yeah, so, one of the earliest sci-fi movies, Fritz Lang's Metropolis. Yeah, she, in this concept album she plays an android who is basically subjugated Mm -hmm. um and and less than humans and she falls in love with a human and for that she needs to be disassembled and Mm -hmm. and destroyed and the first music video that we watched what was the name of that one dirty computer yes and dirty computer i think spans the whole album Mm -hmm. but the first music video in that is one where she is helping um a couple other androids break free yeah and they're they're cruising around in a convertible hover a hover convertible yeah it's like a mustang but it looks like land cruiser from star wars <laughs> new hope we're back at star wars oh, for me it's um it looks like the new star trek movie the reboot okay yeah so anyway and they get pulled over yeah, and it is very reminiscent of like any kind of Black Lives Matter movement where like this robo cop robot cop is like scanning them up and down, is checking their ID. So I want to chuck this in here because this is a really great quote from uh, an author called D. Brandon Ogbunu uh, from 
July of last year, and he's writing on Wired.com, and he said, uh, Futurists ask what tomorrow's hoverboards and flying cars are made of. Afrofuturists ask who will build them, and does their commercial use fall out of their utility in military or law enforcement? And then he goes on to say, quote, Futurists labor over questions about the nature of android consciousness and empathy. Afrofuturists ask how race might be wired into android consciousness whether the android world might be as divided as ours is. So it immediately got me thinking about how uh, even in the future, I think what they're trying to communicate is that even in the future, these people are essentially being targeted because all the androids in the car are black. And it got me thinking about a couple of years ago when they were talking about the way that facial recognition programs are being programmed the the way that the ai is being taught yeah and there was um uh, a scandal uh, about black people being misidentified mm-hmm. as criminals uh, yeah. because it couldn't tell the difference between yeah. black features yeah and so it's disproportionately targeting people of color rather than white people so in that sense it if it's facial recognition uh technology to be used by police forces it, it's um roughly in line with current police uh procedure to disproportionately target black people well yeah i mean you have to look at where where these things come from and, yeah and who is the one creating them for example there's such a disproportionately high amount of, of white men in stem programs and and to have people of color programming something like an android how would that be different from like a white person programming an android what kinds of things would you find in that code yeah yeah which again brings us back to how yeah uh, the pageantry of sun ra or parliament or even up to janelle monet yeah their costumes their music videos are really high concept and they're incredibly fun to look at but they're it all poses a question. There's always a dialogue beneath that. There's always a discussion to be had. So her, her music videos are really interesting, really... Absolutely worth yeah. a watch. But so we've, we've talked about uh, literature, graphic novels, art, music, but what are some potential gaps in the media? And we'll come back to that after a break. All right, see you then. Before the break, we were talking about music, and now let's talk about some potential gaps in the media. So, obviously, a huge media at at this moment is video games. Yeah. And and video games that tell stories. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. obviously, we just had a big lunch of launch of Cyberpunk. Uh, I mean, we did have a big lunch as well. <laughs> yeah, the the big launch. Um, of Cyberpunk uh, 2077, yeah. Which was a flop, but... Yeah. But stories that are are asking questions about what the future will be like, mm-hmm. um, and, and stories that imagine a potential future. Mm-hmm. And that's a huge market in, in video games, but we so very rarely see black characters in video games. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, we have 
is it Bartlett from Final Fantasy Seven? Uh, yes. Oh, you're really you're testing me now. Barrett, Barrett. Wallace. Yeah, Barrett, the guy with the gun for an arm. Yes, um... one of the guys with a gun <laughs> for an arm because there are more than one. So obviously there are characters, black characters in video games, mm-hmm. but again that doesn't make them Afrofuturist, right? And it doesn't really pose any questions. Uh, yeah, the world that they're in. I, you know, I did like, I was kind of scratching my head and I was like, as a kid, I was drawn to games like Akuji the Heartless, which was a criminally underrated adventure game on the PlayStation 1 where you play a voodoo priest who is cast into hell and he has to, he, he has had his heart removed, a, you know, Akuji the Heartless, and he has to go and retrieve it. And then uh, the Shadow Man properties as well. There were two of those. The first one, especially, was meant to be very good. Based on a graphic novel, you're playing a black detective who, again, I think has to go into the underworld and he's using voodoo. uh, He's using voodoo rituals to try to track serial killers and bad guys. And, And again, it was brought out by Acclaim Entertainment and never received a sequel again. But again, these are just examples of uh, black people in video games as the protagonist, not Afrofuturism. I mean, I, and I don't know. I think it's something that is criminally under criminally underrepresented, and, and probably will be, unfortunately, for a long time to come. Apart from maybe, maybe if there are some indie developers out there, you yeah, know. But we have. Uh as we've talked about before, some excellent source material to draw on. Oh, yeah. I mean, if there's the obvious, like, Black Panther, but there are so many other um, incredible stories that you could so easily put into a video game. Yeah. So Charles Saunders, for example, was we talked about briefly, but he writes um, sword and sorcery novels. He's probably the first, um, like, Black fantasy writer. And his novels are set in uh, a, a place called Numbai, Numbayana. Bayani, I'm so sorry. Again, I apologize. It's called Numbayani, I'm so sorry. <laughs> uh, which is like a continent based, based on Africa. Right. But is a fantasy world. Yeah. And, and how amazing would that be for an open world setting to explore? Just there's so many incredible settings you could have and stories you could tell through Afrofuturism in video games. And I think we have so many white stories and so many, and, and like Japanese stories, but where are like stories about other people of color? I think part of the, part of the issue is that we, we are still trying to get around this idea. I mean, at one point we're living through nerd culture kind of dissipating and moving into the mainstream, right? Mm-hmm. 20 years ago, people who went to go watch superhero movies were quote-unquote nerds, right? They weren't the average person on the street. We're now seeing that come full circle because there's a price tag attached to it. People have realized that you can monetize, monetize this. I think we're still trying to get over the idea that people who play video games, they're not just skinny little white kids in their parents' basements. They're not just fully grown white men. They are people of every single race, age, and persuasion nowadays. And there is definitely a market there. I think part of the problem, if I had to guess, I would say part of the problem is because video games, AAA titles anyway, 
are typically collaborative exercises with massive teams of developers. And so for it to, again, Afrofuturism is about something by black people, not just for black, black people, but it should be rooted in black their, culture. exactly, yeah, and, and their creativity. It's their creation. It's, it's something they have ownership over. And I think that's potentially harder to do on a large scale unless you're able to mobilize a lot of black developers and have them get in a room together and sit down and, and, and make something together. However, you know, future's a long, <laughs> long way away. Hopefully something, something will come of that. Um, TV, I think, is another media that is potentially being criminally underrated when it comes to Afrofuturism, especially off the back of the, the reading material that we did uh, this week. I mean, again, I feel like Binti would be a great, it would be a, a great mini-series. Mm-hmm. Um, something where you could really explore that universe and have some really exciting looking costumes, really exciting looking uh, backgrounds and kind of flesh it out a little bit. Yeah, or um, Children of Blood and Bone. Yeah, um, although... There is a movie being made, actually, as uh, when the author had the book published Mm -hmm. the the movie was the movie rights were already in in process of being sold that's how like incredible this book is yeah it's um it's been picked up i think by disney and lucasfilm uh and it's currently in pre-production we've got no date there for when you might be able to go and watch this in cinemas but um hopefully hopefully in the not too distant future uh but again if we have missed anything here Please, by all means, we don't want to live in ignorance. Please uh, message us and let us know if there are any uh, gaps in our knowledge. Are there any fantastic examples that you have come across of Afrofuturism in TV, video games, or elsewhere that we haven't talked about? We do want to know. Absolutely. Um, and we're always looking to expand our horizons. And we're very aware of our own bias in the subject. Yeah. Neither of us are Black. Um, and we are talking about uh, an inherently... Uh, black subject so you know we're we're aware that this is maybe not our specialty but it is something that we're interested in and we think more people should be aware of and and more people should seek out uh these types of media because yeah they're so important not just for black people but for everybody to be aware of the black experience yeah and and see just something new and creative yeah 100 percent. like come across really interesting evocative stories which aren't I guess, quote unquote, which aren't yours, which aren't your own, uh, but to be able to kind of experience them uh, and and see the world through somebody else's eyes. On the subject of other people's experiences, other cultures, um, something that you brought up during our research I thought was really interesting, and I guess it's it's parallels to other similar movements um, from from other groups and other uh, individuals. So something that I wasn't aware of, but was was the Jewish influence in superheroes. So mm-hmm. having read books like Cavalier and Clay, which mm-hmm. is about two uh, Jewish writers, and and I am Jewish, uh, so this was just actually felt really amazing for me to know was that characters like Superman and Batman, uh, Spider-Man, all of these huge uh, characters were actually created by Jewish writers and born from the Jewish immigrant experience. Yeah. Um, so if you look into, for example, the story of Superman, who is an immigrant, 
he is endowed with these superpowers, but he pretends to be an ordinary person. Mm -hmm. We can see parallels to the Messiah and to this experience of being an immigrant in a strange world and trying to hide who you are in order to get by. Yeah. So... I think you were the one who brought up as well the um, the parallels between uh, Kal-El being put in a little space capsule sent to Earth, being taken in by adoptive parents who find him in the middle of nowhere and then raised as a human, uh, not dissimilar to the story of Moses being put in a little basket. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and and then... I, I said that like he was put in a little, <laughs> a little Easter basket surrounded by eggs and, and Kit Kats. Um, but this, this story of basically a person responsible for their race and their culture, but being born through like, basically having to pretend ignorance and pretend to be like everybody else. Yeah. And a lot of these writers were marginalized people. Um, so for example, you probably know the name Jack Kirby. Yeah. Famous for uh, the Kirby Dots. Yeah, when you think of pop, pop art. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you think of these massive blown up cells with really bright primary colors, and then everything is colored using those tiny little dot matrix dots. Yeah. Um, so he was uh, the creator of Fantastic Four. Mm -hmm. His real name was Jacob Kurtzberg. Mm -hmm. yep. uh, and I didn't know that. Stan Lee, for example, um, was born from uh, Romanian Jewish immigrant parents. Mm -hmm. um, and I think maybe he doesn't identify so much as Jewish, but uh, he was raised Jewish. And his name is Stanley Martin Lieber. Mm -hmm. Most of these Jewish artists and writers were not credited for their creations. Mm -hmm. They were really the forefathers of superheroes as we know them yeah but didn't really gain the rights to their creations because they were jewish um so superman for example the the creators of superman didn't get proceeds from that until 1978 so um during a talk show prom promoting the first superman movie there was an elderly gentleman in the audience and he stood up and said my name is jerry siegel i co-created the character superman from which they're making this movie i work at a supermarket bagging groceries and it wasn't until basically everybody uh like fans um made dc pay schuster and and siegel um their dues that they really got credited with their creation of Superman. By the way, Superman's Kryptonian name, Kal El, actually means all is God in mm -hmm. Hebrew. So I think there are so many parallels between Afrofuturism and, and superheroism, like the Jewish superhero experience. Yeah. Um we we see like this idea of creating basically a messiah or a perfect person to come save you. Yeah. From uh, this life of marginalization. Yeah, I think you mentioned earlier the novel Cavalier and Clay by Michael Chambon, and that does a fantastic job of kind of it explains these two separate stories: the the story of the creators themselves, and then the story of the superhero that they create, and this feeling of powerlessness, this feeling of disenfranchisement that 
gets funneled directly into creating this hero who who could save them and who could make the world a better place. You know, uh, we should mention that Cavalier and Clay is largely set. The first half of it is set during the Second World War, the outbreak of the Second World War. So they're really, you know, they're aware of how Jews are being treated, treated, especially in their home countries. And so they create this superhero who, you know, on the pages of these comic books are uh, destroying these Nazi-like characters. And so, yeah, and I think, I don't know if we've mentioned this previously as well, but I think a lot has been made in the past of superheroes, uh, especially the notion of manufactured superheroes, people who are unnaturally imbued with powers coming to save the weak as being very similar to the story of the golem in Jewish mythology. Absolutely. So we can see some parallels there uh, through Jewish mythology. And I think we can also see parallels in in Latinx uh, magical realism. Yeah. Uh, We talked a little bit about this before, magical realism and uh, the work of, especially the, the name that leaps immediately to my mind is Gabriel Garcia Marquez. I, I have to admit, I don't know if magical realism is for me. I've tried reading uh, Love and Time of Cholera. I've tried reading 100 Years of Solitude. Neither one really stuck with me. Maybe, I, I don't know if, maybe I just didn't get it. I think it's tough because his work is obviously translated. Yes. Um, and it, it, to me, it kind of brings to mind maybe earlier sci-fi novels where it's very dense. And it's a little bit hard, harder for me to re- read, but this idea of, of magical realism is born from marrying the, the native cultures of, of Latinx people with their conquered history. So I think you can really see parallels there between Afrofuturism and, and Latinx magical realism. So it started in the 1950s, and... Is this idea that not like the whole world is, is fantastical, but that the fantastical is the everyday. Mm-hmm. That there is a character who has slight magical powers. Yeah. Um, so, for example, in Water for Chocolate, the character can imbue the food that they cook with feelings. Delicious. <laughs> and so we can see the, the fantastical and, and really like the otherness mm-hmm. and the native peoples become like an everyday occurrence in the lives of, of Latinx people, which yeah. it is, but it's trying to marry that native culture with your reality of being a conquered people mm-hmm. and, a, and a, in a post-colonial society. Yeah, and I think it would be fair to say as well that people living in places like Central and South America, it seems like more of the native culture still exists there in everyday life. So more of that, I guess we would consider it wrongly or rightly, we would consider almost like magical properties or mysticism or that mythology is still it's still there and, and it's still something that surrounds them every single day. And also... I remember something else. I think it was in, I want to say it was in 100 Years of Solitude. You have these really long lineages of people and and people living outside of the normal human lifespan, which is something else that I think this is the part that I didn't really get. This is why magical realism doesn't really work for me because I need it to be magic or I need it to be real. 
And when the two blend uh, together, it, it just kind of goes over my head. I think it's the same reason why I can't read Murakami, because Murakami stuff will be rooted in the everyday, almost to the point where it's mundane. And then all of a sudden, somebody's talking to cats and, they, you know, um, and, and I'm like, what just happened? So the point is probably not for me to get it. The point is for it to find some audience who appreciate it for what it is. I agree. I think, you know, all of this stuff is not necessarily for everyone. You know, that's the point of genres and, and fiction writing is to find the correct audience but also to open people up to something that they may not have tried before. Mm -hmm. For me, if you want to try magical realism, one of my favorite novels is The Brief Wondrous Life of Oscar Wilde by Gino Diaz. And that is a book about the immigrant experience, the Dominican Republic and immigrant experience. And it's a family followed by uh, a fuku, which is a curse. Um, and just like this history of their family and, and their, their bad luck. But the, the book is written, so it, the author wrote it in both English and Spanish. And it's, a, it's an easy read. You know, it, it's not dense like 100 Years of Solitude. Very modern writing. It marries these ideas of what it is to be an immigrant and the immigrant experience, but trying to find your history. Yeah. Um, and I think... It's just, it's an incredible book, and it's definitely something that, that people should pick up. Well, on that note, I think we should probably round off our discussion of Afrofuturism. So, I've really enjoyed this topic, I've got to say. It's been eye-opening, and I definitely want to go back and revisit some more music videos from the 90s and see more of the, I don't know, see see more of that, that... Uh, yeah, the influences of those earlier artists like Sun Ra, like Parliament, uh, because I think a lot of it is there. Uh, I also definitely want to go back and listen to some more um, George Clinton, and I'm, I'm definitely going to be going and reading some more Octavia E. Butler in the near future. How about you? Yeah, I think I've read some Afrofuturist books in the past without really knowing what Afrofuturism was. Sure. But uh, I think within mind towards looking at more books, uh, especially for me, but I would love to see more media that's not just literature and, and music videos. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's something that you as a listener should definitely check out mm -hmm. um, if you haven't already. Uh, it's just a, an incredible genre and, and an incredible storytelling device. Yeah. So that's our call to action for this week, guys. Uh, go and give Afrofuturism a quick Google, see what comes up and see if there is not something there that you can dive into and become more engaged with. Because honestly, it's so broad. And I, you know, we've talked about this for over an hour today, but I wish uh, I wish we had double that time because we we are barely scratching the surface. So thank you so much for listening. Next time, uh, we are going to be jumping into the letter B. 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 I'm doing it again. I don't know why I'm doing it. So, All right. Uh, thanks for listening. Yeah. Thank you so much, guys. We will catch you next time. Take care for now. Bye-bye. Ciao. Ciao. Enter the Rabbit Hole is written and presented by William Grant and Alicia Palmer. The music was created by Glenn Marshall. More information and sources can be found in the episode description. You can email us at etrhthepod at gmail or follow us on Instagram at etrhthepod. Thanks for listening.